Okay, are we all ready? All right, let's go ahead and open with prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for uh, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we thank you for giving us scripture. We thank you for your work in building your church in the world, and we pray you would help us to think biblically and accurately and clearly uh, in this age of relativism and indifference to truth, that we would have the very same passion for the truth of the gospel that the Apostle Paul had and that our Lord Jesus Christ had and that the prophets had, and that we would stand firmly and immovably upon your word of truth and upon the great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would always have a zeal in our hearts to protect and defend the all-sufficiency of his cross work to forgive us and of his righteousness to clothe us and justify us before you that we receive by faith alone, faith being understood as reliance and trust upon that finished work and in nothing else. And we pray you'd help us to grow in our understanding of that in this time together now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Come on in. Come on in. Okay, last time we left off um, in Galatians 2, 5 was the last verse we read, but I'll go ahead and back up to chapter 2, verse 1 and just read to get the context before we go into verse 6. Paul says here, and remember, the the burden that he's kind of got here is to defend the divine origin of the gospel that he had preached to those churches that were founded in that area. And he's making sure that they all know that the source of the gospel that he preached to them was who? God. God. Okay, and he learned it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says specifically, uh, I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it but I received it by a revelation from Jesus Christ. So what he taught them about how sinners are made right with God is directly from the Lord Jesus. And because of that, he is very zealous to defend that, and he is very unhappy about anything being added to simple faith in Christ as the means by which we're justified before God and gain eternal life. So that's really where his great burden is. And that's where our great burden needs to be, uh, too, that we protect the all-sufficiency of, of Christ's work. I was thinking about that and just thinking about talking to you all this evening. Like, that's what Paul was so passionate about was it's not, it's not so much about us and making sure that we believe the right things, which it is part of that. But the main thing is to make sure that Jesus is the one that does all the saving and that the Christian's confidence rests on that finished work and, and nothing else. And so that's why he's so, so fired up in this letter. Because that is what he taught them. When he had been there and preached to them, that's what he told them. That he preached Christ crucified. That's how you're saved. And he's very upset because they were saying, oh yeah, we we believe that. But we also have to do this. Or we also have to do that. Or we also have to not do this. Adding to that. And what Paul is going to really hammer home here. in, In Galatians 2 and Galatians 3, Galatians 4... He marshals every argument he can possibly come up with. It's either Christ does it all or you do it all by your works. But any attempt to mix the two, if you try to mix works with grace, Christ is out of the equation. And I really believe it's because of those kinds of errors. That's what stacks the line of people in Matthew 7, 22. Many shall come on that day and say what? Lord, Lord. I'm sorry? They listed all the things they did. That's right. They're trusting in, did we not this? Did we not that? So these are people who said they believed in Jesus, but they added other things to it. 
I think the, the primary people who are going to hear that are people who said, oh, yeah, of course we believe. We believe in Jesus. Couldn't do it without Jesus. But they added something to it. They added something to him. They didn't think he was enough. And so that's why, why Paul is so fired up in this letter. <clears throat> All right, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Remember the point that Joseph Dotson made last time? All the war illustrations being used here? Spies, stealth, bondage, being captured. Okay, it's, what, what is that being communicated there? Well, this is a war. We are at war for the truth at all times. And the, the shepherds of the church especially have got to always be kind of on the lookout and have their nose to the wind for these kinds of, of teachings and ideas. Okay? All right, uh, verse 5. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And so it was dealt with very quickly by the apostle. When he heard it, he immediately refuted it. He immediately confronts Peter, as we're going to see here, that this is wrong. You guys need to repent of this. You guys are, are getting the gospel wrong here. So that's how serious this is. He didn't tolerate that even for an hour, he says. So that's an important, that's a really critical verse. Okay, you don't tolerate that kind of error um, for any length of time at all because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. You let a little bit of that in, uh, it'll start taking over everything. All right, verse six. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Now, now who, who's he talking about here? You find out later in the passage you see verse 9, James, Peter, and John. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's like, they didn't add anything to me. These are, the, these are other apostles. Peter, James, and John are real important people. He's saying, but even they did not add anything to what I taught. Okay, they gave me the right hand. As we're going to see, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They recognized that God had called me as an apostle. So look at the rest of verse 6. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, meaning the Gentile world, had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And I think probably what he's referring to here when he says in verse 8, he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles, not only the power of his preaching, but also his ability to do what? Miracles, signs and wonders. Okay, always remember, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 4.12. He said, truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you. And that's really, I love how simple that argument is. Um, when Paul defends his apostleship, I can do miracles and they can. It's as simple as that. I did the signs of an apostle, they can't do them. Okay, when, remember when Moses 
was sent to the people of Israel, Moses asks God a question. Well, what if they don't believe me? What if they say God hasn't appeared to you? Then what? What does God give them the ability to do? Show them this. <laughs> throw, throw your staff down, it will become a serpent. Put your hand in your cloak and bring it out. It'll be leprous and put it back and it'll be healed and also the ability to turn water into blood. So those miraculous powers that were given to God's spokespersons, that differentiated them from the false ones. Okay? All right, look at verse uh, um, 10, kind of the summary there. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And so the gospel was always for everybody. It, didn't, it wasn't for social castes or uh, a special group of people, a special color of people, a special nationality of people. It was for everybody, and they wanted especially for them to remember the poor. Okay, now we get into kind of the, the meat. Now we're past the kind of the long introduction, verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, and, and where, what church was James kind of presiding over? The church in Jerusalem, okay? So these would have been Jewish believers, probably, probably Jewish believers who were still holding on to a lot of those old Jewish rites, rituals, and traditions, and had a real hard time letting go of all of that. And before certain men came from James, verse 12, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. Okay, so stop there for a minute. Peter understood it. Peter understood you can eat with Gentiles. Now, why, why did Peter in particular really understand this? Yeah, the vision, uh, the sheet that came down with all the unclean animals. And then who is Peter sent to supernaturally? Cornelius. Cornelius. Okay, and, and, he, and it's, it's so, it's just classic Peter. Peter argues with Jesus about it for a while. In, in that vision of the sheet that comes down with all the unclean animals. And I, I've never eaten any, anything unclean in my life. Like he's correcting Jesus again. Um, and he says, do not call unclean what I have pronounced clean. And then the, they see the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his household, and they're baptized. And then uh, Cornelius speaks with tongues, and obviously the Holy Spirit has come to the Gentiles. So Peter really gets this. So he understood you can eat with Gentiles now. You don't need, we don't need to see them as dogs or as outsiders or anything like that. Okay, so Peter understood it. Peter got it. He would eat with the Gentiles, verse 12, but the rest, see the rest of verse 12? But when they came, when this group from Jerusalem with James came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So what happened here? Why does Peter back away from eating with Gentiles? What's his problem? Fear of man instead of fear of God. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was intimidated by this group. And he's like, you know, they, these are like probably high, lofty, prestigious you know, people, I don't want to, you know, offend them. And uh, so he withdrew again from eating with the Gentiles. But Paul knew that he had overcome that and that he had been eating with Gentiles. In fact, I've heard reform guys say, you know, in effect, what Paul was saying, Peter, I know that you've had a BLT sandwich before. I've seen you eating it. So why are you acting like all of a sudden we're supposed to go back and keep dietary laws? Okay, look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Why, why are sins, some sins, according to our, the larger catechism, and I think it's clearly taught in scripture, the sins of some people are more heinous than the sins of others. Well, what are some circumstances where the sins of certain people would be considered more serious? Yes, sir. Rulers. I'm sorry? Rulers. Rulers, absolutely. And why is that, Canaan? Because they 
That's right. They have more responsibility. They have more um, people looking at them, people watching them. That's why for David, it was such a big deal when he sinned the way he did because people are watching him. Okay, so here you see Peter makes this error. What happens? A whole bunch of people follow him, right? Why? I'm sorry? He's a leader. He's an apostle. Like, this, you said, like you were teaching on Sunday about you're an example. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And that was one thing they warned us about, you know, when, when I was in seminary. We had some really good professors there, and they said, guys, there will be kind of an implicit transfer of credibility to you when you hold this office. And people would just assume you know what you're talking about. He's like, that should frighten all of you. <laughs> and he's right, it should. It, we, you should make sure that, you know, what you're teaching is what the Holy Spirit has said. But that verse 13, that should chill us. You see it there? And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so he led a bunch of other people to sin by what he did. And Paul sees right through it. Paul sees immediately that not only is he creating a division among God's people. Remember, how many times does Paul say in his letters, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So he says in verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? That would have been kind of embarrassing to him, don't you think? So here he is withdrawing, and he's got all these people following him, and Paul's like, I know you live like a Gentile. I know that you live like a Gentile because I've seen you doing it before. So why all of a sudden are you doing this? And what do you think Peter's going to say? Because I'm, I'm gutless in this particular instance? Of, co of course not. He, he was probably really embarrassed by this. But then Paul moves into the implications of withdrawing from Gentiles and really, really in a sense, adding requirements to the gospel for being a Christian that you need to keep these dietary laws. Now, Peter, in effect, is teaching that positively by his example, saying, no, 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 we can't eat with these Gentiles, and we can't eat, uh, we still have to follow the dietary laws. Paul sees, in effect, he's adding that to faith in Christ as a means of justification. So Paul is going to go right at it with them. So look at verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, he's being kind of facetious there because everybody's sinful, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So, in effect, Peter is adding those dietary laws back to the means of being right with God. By, with, by refusing to eat with Gentiles, by refusing to eat with them, he was in effect saying they need to become like Jews now in, in the sense of keeping the dietary laws. And Paul sees this is an indirect assault on the very freeness of the gospel. Okay, and that's why he says, you see verse 16, I mean, he, he gets the gospel four times in one verse. <clears throat> Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about that for a minute. When he says justified there, what does he mean? Declared righteous. declared righteous. Men are not declared righteous by 
the works of the law. What does he mean by the works of the law? The obedience. By anything they do. Yeah. Anything they do in obedience to any of God's laws from the Old Testament. By any, to any of them. Okay? So we're justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. What is faith in Jesus Christ? What is that? I know you, many, many know the technical definition. What, what is it, though? Like, Trust. what is... I'm sorry? Trust. Trust. Okay, elaborate on that a little bit. Trust meaning we trust. Relying only on him. Okay, relying only on him. Yep. Yes, sir? I know a biblical word, especially the Greek New Testament, has nuances, different meanings. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the old translation of King James, in verse 16, it translates, I think it renders it through faith of Jesus Christ. Faith of Jesus Christ. Why did they translate it that way? Is there a particular... Because faith in, right, your translation is the faith of Jesus Christ. Right, and, and some have, have tried to say it's the faithfulness of of Jesus Christ. Okay. But really, when, when I went to Greek in seminary, one of the things that you learn right away is that Greek prepositions are incredibly fluid, um, and they have a, a very very wide range of meanings. In fact, there was one there was one preposition, the preposition epi. You have to write like twenty definitions on the back of that flashcard, and I'm like, wow. How do, how do you know how it's being used? Well, well, the, con the context tells you. A lot of times the word ice is used in front of uh, Christ, meaning in Jesus Christ or the preposition N, uh, in Jesus Christ. They're just different. They're roundabout ways of referring to the same thing. The thing that you're relying on to get you into heaven is going to be what Christ has done, nothing that you've so done. it's loaded with theological meaning. The, the faith of, like he merit, he won the righteousness. Yeah. But, but yeah. And... But the main, the main point, though, being communicated there, so you can actually render it of Jesus Christ if it's a genitive, too, if it's in, if it's in the genitive case. Mm -hmm. But really, even, even then, it's still talking about what it is you're relying on to get you into heaven. But, but yes, Christ was faithful to his mission. But really, what, he, what he's saying here, um, the King James translators are just being as wooden, literal as they can be. They're not trying to smooth it out at all. Um, but, Julia, are you looking at the Greek New Testament? Yeah. Does it does it have a preposition in front of and e, yeah the the end see that that's that that preposition is actually not as fluid as some of the other ones and usually almost always when it takes the dative right it means in yeah it only takes the dative yeah that's right that's right it, it only can, I remember, yeah yeah I didn't like those prepositions that took three different cases yes because the meaning was different depending on what case followed it yeah. <laughs> yeah, like epi. I remember epi. It was like you have to write five different things it can mean if it takes a dative, if it takes an accusative, and if it takes what's the other one it can take? It can take the, uh, dative, the genitive, the the, dative, or the accusative. Yeah, dative, genitive, or accusative. It's like on, over, against, in, with, by, under. I'm like, wow. But so, even then, it didn't stay within the categories always. You know, yeah. Well, let's just go with on. That works. Yeah. See, and that's kind of that's kind of the way. Like, the um, Greek is a lot more precise than, than Hebrew is. Like, Greek's got a lot more um, a lot more words in it. But I, I don't know of any languages that have more words in it than English. Like, our dictionaries are like the biggest dictionaries ever. Like, we have tens of thousands of, of words. So every time we want to say something different, we just make up a new word. But they'll use the same word in a bunch of different ways. But so, our prepositions are still also often amb ambiguous. They are. 
Think about how many ways we use the word F-O-R. I'm for you, not against you. What's that for? Um, there's like 12 different ways you can use it if you really think about it. But how do you know how it's being used? You just look at the, at the context. Okay, so here, believe in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, and not by works of law. And what you're going to see throughout the rest of, of Galatians, and this is one of the reasons that I think all gospel ministers, Paul, Paul does this and, and all should follow him, that faith in Jesus Christ, if someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ, and they are also trusting in something they've done to get them into heaven, they don't really believe in Jesus Christ then. And Paul's thinking, that's how it works. If you believe in Jesus plus something, you don't believe in Jesus. It's hit for, for Paul, it's, to believe in Jesus Christ is not to trust in anything else that you've done alongside of him, in addition to him, or in place of him, or anything like that. Does that make sense? Okay, Christ enters into that broken covenant. He enters into what Adam failed to do. He obeys God where, where the first Adam failed to obey, and then that's imputed to us. That's reckoned to our account. That gift of righteousness is given to us, and that's how we're declared righteous before God is only upon that legal basis. Okay. Um, so, y- yes, sir. Can I ask? I want to go back for a second if I can. Yeah, go right because, ahead. Uh, verse, uh, well, this, this is back to 13. Verse uh, 13? About, about Barnabas. And this, I just want clarification so I can get some understanding because it's something I don't think I've ever seen before. But Okay. Um, so, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Yes. Did not Paul and Barnabas have a conflict and a separation at a time? Was it not Paul that he was? It was. It was. I'm sorry. It was John Mark. John it, Mark. Yeah, that okay. he that they yeah they they had a yeah a rift yeah. Well, and I, for some reason, I had Barnabas in my mind. So yeah. Yeah, but he, yeah, Bar- Bar- even Barnabas, who was the guy that introduced Paul to the other apostles. Because remember, what is everyone thinking when they hear that Saul of Tarsus is now a Christian and an apostle? What do they all think? Yeah, well, yeah, they're like, no, no, he's not. Like, yeah, we were, we remember Stephen. Remember Stephen? He's dead um, because of this guy. But Barnabas is the one who you know goes to to the apostles. No, he's one of us now, and he not only is he one of us, but Jesus appeared to him and has commissioned him to be apostle but yeah good good question but yeah even barnabas as much as he knew he was carried away by peter's leading him astray so just another example okay um so paul really hammers that point verse 16 is a key one but by faith in jesus christ even we have believed in christ jesus that we might be justified by faith in christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified Okay, so by, by what we do, no flesh will be justified in his sight. There was a, a really, really great preacher that lived in Akron, Ohio. Like when Amy and I first got married, we lived in Akron. And I was looking for reformed churches. I had just become kind of reformed in my thinking. And this guy named Carl Bogue, and he actually, I think, had actually taught as an adjunct professor at Greenville Seminary once. But he did a couple sermons on justification and their evening services, and they were so excellent. And he made a statement once that I, I've never forgot, and I've, you've probably heard me repeat it many times. He said, as soon as Adam ate the forbidden fruit, justification to any degree by our works ceased to be possible. As soon as Adam rebels, it's off the table now. Man cannot do 
what God requires. I remember like writing that down like that. Yeah. And that's why someone's got to come into history at a certain time. Jesus has got to, got to take on human, a, a body, a reasonable soul and a, a body, enter into that broken covenant. And he's got to do what, what Adam failed to do. And it's completely vicarious. And that's why it has to be by faith and not by works. Now, does God sanctify us and change us and grant us repentance? Yes. Does that contribute or play any role in getting us into heaven? Or is that part of what saving faith is? Not at all. In no way, shape, or form is it. Okay? And Paul is going to address that in Galatians as well. Okay? We don't begin with faith and then end with something else. It's, it's, remember what Paul says at the beginning of Romans? It is by faith from what? From beginning to end, from first to last, from faith to faith. Okay? All right, look at verse 17. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? So what, what's he dealing with here? What does everybody say when you preach the freeness of God's grace? And you just sin, do whatever you want. That's right. <laughs> There's a guy, there was a guy up in, I remember in Akron, um, a fellow, Roman Catholic fellow, he told me, you just make it sound so easy, you make it sound too easy that you can't be right. <laughs> and yeah, that's it's sad. But we're not saying Christ is a minister of sin. God grants repentance and God grants a new heart and God is the one who, who changes us and sanctifies us and gives us new desires and, and puts us going in a whole new direction and we, we want to overcome sin, but that's not justification, and that's not how we're saved. Okay? It's part of what God does in the life of every believer, but it plays no role in our verdict of being declared righteous. Okay? All right, um, verse 18. I, I love the way this, this verse reads. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I remember teaching through Galatians years ago. I had to read a bunch of commentaries, and I, like, I felt like I finally got it. I know, I know what he's saying here. If he was preaching that our good works in some way made us right with God, then he's rebuilding what the gospel has already destroyed, the idea of salvation by law-keeping. He's like, if I let you guys do this, if, if I preach good works or circumcision or dietary laws as the means of being right with God, I'm rebuilding what I once destroyed. Meaning when I was there the first time, I preached the, the gospel is law-free. There's no law in it at all. There's no obedience that we render at all to be justified before God. But if I allow this corruption, I'm rebuilding what I once destroyed with my original preaching. Does that make sense? So I think that, I, I'm pretty sure that, that is what he means by, with verse 18. If I build again those things which I destroyed, which my gospel destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I, I myself would be sinning. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. And there he's kind of talking about the law. The law slays us. The law kills us. Okay, and how does it do that? It inflicts its curse upon us because we all do what? Sin. We all sin against it. We all, we all break it. That's why later on in Galatians 3, he's going to say in Galatians 3.10, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. And what does he mean? What does it mean when he says all the people who are of the law, they're under the curse? Who are those people? Pharisees. Yeah. Anyone, anyone who thinks they're keeping it to any degree to get themselves into heaven. He's like, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in everything in the book of the law. 
to do it. Okay. Anytime you ever hear anybody, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. God, God doesn't expect us to be, to, you know, produce a perfect righteousness. What, how, how do we answer that? Jesus died for nothing. That's right. And what else? That's right. And, and how else do we know that? We know that we have to be perfect to go to heaven. Jesus said it be Because <laughs> he said. Yeah. Yeah. That's not good news. Okay. Be perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as my father, as your father in heaven is perfect. That is the message of the law. Do this and you will live. Okay. And, and the whole point is there's nobody that does it. There's nobody that does the law. And we can't because we're, we're conceived in sin, born in sin, and we all fall short of the glory of God. <clears throat> okay, look at verse uh, 20. 20 is a classic, glorious text of Scripture. A lot of people have this one memorized. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And there, it's, what's neat about Galatians, Galatians has a lot of parallels to the book of Romans. And he does in Galatians, in like little verses and little sentences, what he expands on for a whole chapter in the book of Romans. But that's such a glorious text. I mean, think about, reflect on what that is saying. When he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I, I through the law, died to the law that I would live to God. What's he talking about there? The, the Christian lives for God now. Why? Because you're not trying to earn your way to heaven. We're not trying to earn our way into heaven anymore. Okay, what motivates holiness? What motivates the Christian life? Love, love for God and gratitude. gratitude, thankfulness. Okay, I always think of, I remember going through the Heidelberg Catechism many years ago, and Second um, Corinthians 4.15 was one of the texts that the Heidelberg Catechism directed me to. I remember looking at it, and it says, in order that grace having spread to the many, would cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. I thought, that's so wonderful. Grace causes thanksgiving. When it's really understood, because it's entirely free, it's entirely based on what Christ has done, what, what does it cause? Thanksgiving. It doesn't cause fear. It doesn't cause, well, I sure do hope I'm going to heaven. It's, I'm going to heaven. God has saved me, and I'm thankful that he did it. So now I want to... To have thanksgiving abounding to the glory of God. So we died with Christ. That's kind of what Paul's talking about in Romans 6. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? You know, he says the same thing there. He elaborates a lot more on it there. I love Romans 6 verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin will be done away with. Okay. That we would no longer be slaves of sin. Okay. All right, look at verse 21. Verse 21 is another text that's cited very often in the Reformed Confessions and all of them, uh, the, the uh, Continental Reformed Traditions, the Baptist Confessions, the uh, Presbyterian Confessions. I do not set aside the grace of God if righteousness comes through the law and Christ died in vain. See, in his thinking, you either trust in him and only in him or he died for nothing. So coming to God means coming on his terms. And his terms are, we renounce everything that we ever have done, ever will do, and you throw yourself on Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. And that's what it is to have faith in him. It is to rely upon him and nothing else. Okay, any, any thoughts about Galatians 2? That's some of the best stuff, some of the most glorious stuff God's said to mankind is right there.
Do you believe that Galatians or, or uh, any of the oldest New Testament books? Yeah, mm -hmm. the stuff the stuff that I've read, the commentators, Leon Moore states it between forty eight and fifty two. Right. So, yeah, I've heard I've heard Galatians as the first. I've heard First Thessalonians as being one of the earliest because you see there in um, in Acts when Paul when Paul and, and uh, or, uh, Paul and Silas were driven out of Thessalonica because of all the rioting going on. That's why he wrote them two letters because he was really concerned about them. So those are real early, but Galatians probably is the earliest one. Has anyone else, anyone else ever really studied that a whole lot? There's a lot. There's a lot of literature on the dating of the books, but I mean, ima imagine how close that is to the resurrection of Christ, though. Forty-eight or fifty A.D. You're talking like two decades later. Okay, so it's pretty pretty remarkable to think. Okay, now now Paul's really going to take the gloves off. You all ready? <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Okay. And um, as, as I recall, that is that, that's the word anaitoi, right? What does that mean? It does not mean like you stupid. What does it mean? It means not thinking. Yeah. Yeah, anaitoi. Yeah, because news is from mind. Okay. Yeah. So, you foolish Galatians. And then he uses, he uses a term, a verb that has to do with witchcraft. Who has bewitched you? And that, it, it, that's a hot box legomena, isn't it? That's the only place that occurs in the New Testament, isn't it? Yeah. And I remember looking that up years ago and going, man, he's like saying, who cast a spell on you? It's a hot box. Yeah, so it's the only time that verb's ever used in the New Testament. Who has bewitched you? Who cast a spell on you? That you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Now think about how powerful that argument is. What he's saying to them is, I preach that Christ was crucified. To, to his way of thinking, that's enough for you to understand your works play no role in this. I used to think, why would he say, why would he say that? And it's like, of course, if I preach Christ crucified, that means you trust in that, nothing else. So why, why do you guys act like I preached the law to you when I preached the gospel to you? Okay, verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then here's a, a key text. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Excuse me. You could, you could translate that into modern parlance in lots of different ways. Having begun with faith in Christ, are you now going to get into heaven by your fruit? Having begun with trusting Jesus, are you now going to be saved by your obedience? I mean, you could, that verse takes care of uh, a lot of different heresies throughout the whole history of Christianity. Uh, Rome teaches the same thing. You know, that your, your initial justification is entirely gracious. It's by, you, you, you get it through baptism. It's entirely gratuitous. You don't contribute anything to it. But then you have to cooperate with infused grace through sacraments. And then you've got to produce enough good works. And then hopefully you only have to spend a little bit of time in purgatory before you end up in heaven. Having begun with pure grace, are you now going to be saved by your works or by your obedience? Okay. Yeah, it does. It, that, it's the very same error. Yeah, initial justification, initial salvation, and final salvation by by works or by fruit. It's the same thing. Verse four: 
And then he says, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Why do you think he says that to them? They've been persecuted. But if they don't believe the true gospel, what difference does it make? Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, even if I have all faith is, is to, to, to move mountains and I, I give my body to be burned and have not love, I am nothing. It's the same thing here. If you don't, if you don't know Christ, if you don't believe the, the truth, the true gospel, what difference does it make if you were persecuted for it? Okay, so... He's saying your suffering may, may be in vain. You see how serious this is to him? Theology is everything to him. What, you, what a person believes about Christ, that believes about how they're made right with God, that's everything to him. Okay? And, and always remember that. I know this is kind of basic, but this is something that I, I was thinking about recently. The reason that we need scripture is that because of the fall, we don't, we don't have a right knowledge of God anymore. I don't know what's true anymore about God. I don't know what's true anymore about me either. And so God's got to replace my erroneous thoughts with true ones. He's got to replace my thoughts about myself, about the afterlife, about who God is and how good or not good I am. He's got to replace all that with true facts and true revelation. And so that's what the Bible is. The Bible is God replacing our false ideas that we have because we're fallen with true ones. Okay. So it's, it's vitally important that we believe what's true. It's very, very important. Okay, and then uh, verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You see how in his mind it's one or the other. It's it's either your works or or the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So there you have, what is he citing from there? Genesis. Yeah, Genesis 15, verse 6. Remember, what is the context of that? What, What was going on in that chapter in Genesis 15? Um, not, not quite, yeah, actually towards the end of the, of the chapter it is, but at the beginning of Genesis 15, remember Abraham, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's the, the severed halves, but the chapter begins with Abraham almost complaining to God, going, you know, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, I don't have any descendants. And then God tells him, go outside and look at the stars and count them if you can. And then he says, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham's, you know, getting up there. He's close to 100 now. And his wife is close to 90. And then it says, after God tells him, go outside and count the stars. It says in verse 6, and Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham understood something very important there. He understood that that was a promise of the coming of Christ. The stars of the heavens, that's all of the elect across all the ages of time. Because who, who are the children of Abraham? Who are his real descendants? All believers, Jew or Gentile. Okay, we are the children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. So he believes that promise. Remember when Jesus is arguing with his opponents in John 8, he tells them, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Jesus told them that. Okay, indeed, Abraham was looking forward to my coming, and Abraham understood that the, the, all the families of the world were going to be blessed through one of his descendants. Okay, so Abraham believes the gospel, and that's what actually what the next two verses say. Yeah, that was Genesis 12, which was like, uh, wasn't it like 15 years prior or something like that? 12 years or something? Genesis 12? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we're told in the New Testament that that's when the gospel was yeah. preached to him, yeah. saying, and you all families or nations of the earth will be yeah. 
Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's interesting. It kind of makes you like, well, it seems like you believed in 12. I know. There's debate about it, yeah. I mean, he he did do what God said. Yeah. And he, you know, but it's not just that statement saying he believed God in 15 doesn't mean he didn't believe much. Yeah, right. But anyway, it's. It's yeah, interesting. It, yeah, it is because I I wondered about that. Was he is he kind of like struggling along the way, and then he finally is effectually called, and he, he be, he's a true believer in Genesis fifteen, or the fact that he listened to God and he actually got up and left and went over where God told him to go in Genesis twelve is is remarkable too. Um, so I don't know, like different people say different things about when he was actually converted and saved. Um, but we know for sure in Genesis 15, that is uh, definitely where you get the first real expression of it there. But Genesis 15, 6 is like one of Paul's favorite Bible verses. He quotes it a lot. He quotes it in Galatians. He quotes it in three different verses just in Romans 4. He cites it constantly. And, and dear ones, the, the, the thing about that that is so significant is where does Abraham come in relationship to the Sinaitic covenant and the giving of the law? Yeah, long before. And Paul even says it was 430 years before that. The Pharisees and most of the Jewish people at the time of Christ, they really looked at the law as where their hope was. And Paul's point, and really the New Testament has this great burden, they shouldn't have looked to that. That should have caused them to look back to the promise God made Abraham. And and there were some that did. There were some that did look to the promise of God and the Messiah was was one day going to come. But for the most part, the Jewish people, and especially the Pharisees, they looked at the law as being the source of life. And that's why Jesus, in his opening salvo there in the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing he really tries to hammer home to them is what? About the law. For, for those of you that thought you kept it, guess what? <laughs> you don't. He kind of points out, you've heard this, and I know maybe you haven't committed adultery, like physically, but all of you have in your hearts, and the law, the law always demanded full conformity, not just outward conformity. Okay, so their hope was supposed to, they should have looked back to the promise that God made Abraham. And Genesis 15, 6 was there all along. That's where Abraham was accounted as righteous before God. Okay, so, so look at verse uh, 8 there. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying... In you all the nations shall be blessed. And that's that, as Travis was saying, that's that citation from Genesis 12, 3 right there. In you all the nations shall shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You know what's interesting is, okay, here Paul cites from Genesis 12, 3. In Romans 4, he says, he, he cites from Genesis 15, where God says, count the stars, so shall your descendants be. In Romans 4, Paul says, that's talking about all believers through all the ages of time. And Paul cites the Genesis 12 one here as well. Everyone that believes is among the nations that will be blessed in that promise God makes Abraham. Okay? So I would encourage you when, you, when you read through New Testament books like this and you see citations from the Old Testament, it's very, very helpful to go back. Like if you have a, a nice Bible with like cross-references, look up those citations and look at how the apostles are interpreting them and how they, they understand what's going on there. That's very, very helpful in terms of understanding like the, the fabric of Scripture, how it all fits together. So, all right, any, any thoughts or, or questions? We'll finish with verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So, remember, when he says, 
Those who are of faith, that's those who are trusting in Christ alone. And then there are those who are of the works of the law. Now, what about the people that say, well, I'm of faith and of the works of the law? What's he going to go on to say in Galatians there, in Galatians 5? You guys are all being shy. That's right. You can't mix the two things. And that's why he says Galatians 5 is such a climactic uh, chapter of God's word. Because he says, I, Paul, say to you, I solemnly testify to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. Why? They receive circumcision and are trusting in it. What are they in effect saying? What Jesus did isn't enough. And God is not okay with that. <laughs> it's, yeah, all of it. All of it is a frontal attack on the all-sufficiency of the work of Christ. And that's why Galatians is such an important letter. It's an important letter for, for all time, for the, for the church of all centuries. And I've even heard um, historians of Christian theology say that you can, you can almost gauge the health of the, of the church I know, I agree. It's convicting stuff. <laughs> you can gauge the health of the church by how popular the book of Romans was in those centuries and how popular the book of Galatians was. I remember Michael Horton saying that he's a, a church, a, he has a PhD in historical theology. He said how well these books were known and how much they were read by bishops and, and pastors and laity really has a massive effect on the health of the church. Because what the, the way they preach the gospel and teach it is so pristine and pure. And it, you can't miss that it, it's Christ alone. And faith is not works or obedience. Faith is just relying on Christ. And the church thrives when that's understood. Because people really are set free to live a godly life and to follow the Lord. And, and they, they understand that we have eternal life. They don't spend their lives, you know, introspective. And, Am I really saved? Am I really saved? No, 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 I, I am saved. Now I can get busy living my life for the Lord and, and investing for him and investing in other people. And, you know, remember that illustration I shared from J.C. Ryle about the, the two guys that are given a piece of land? And, and they're both given full assurance that the land is theirs. I forget what book of his this is. It might, I think it might be, it's in the book Holiness. If you've never read Holiness by J.C. Ryle, this is a wonderful book. In the chapter on assurance, he says, imagine a guy that owns two tracts of land and he gives a, the track of land to two different guys. And he gives them every legal piece of paper you can imagine to assure them that the land is really theirs. And one of them accepts the land and says, yep, oh yeah, he, he signed the document, cool, it's my land. And he gets busy working the land. The other guy is constantly worried, is the docu- are the documents really in place? And he keeps coming back to the, to the landowner and asking him, are you sure it's really mine? Are you sure it's really mine? Yes, it's really yours. I've given you every assurance that it is. And Ryle says, and the one guy can hardly ever get any work done because he's constantly going back to the landowner to see if the land's really his. And the other one knows it's his and he spends all his time working the land and he yields a lot more fruit. And that's a beautiful illustration. When people have assurance and they really know they're right with God and they know, even if I have a good day, a bad day, or I'll go through a very dark period in my life or whatever, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ and going to heaven. You will accomplish a lot more for the kingdom of God if you know you have eternal life. And I tell you, in pastoral ministry, it's heartbreaking how, how much people struggle with assurance. And I understand that struggle. I've had that struggle before. But by the grace of God, the more you immerse yourself in Scripture, the more you recognize 
It's God's will for you to know that you have eternal life. And it's normal for a Christian to know they have eternal life and to be at peace about it, to have assurance of it. Okay? Wow. I've been talking to you for 50 minutes. Wow. Okay, that's like sermon length. <laughs> Sorry. That goes right back to, it's like Romans 10, isn't it, where it says that you hold the law of Moses, Mm-hmm. Finishing the law of Moses, but I say to you that if you confess in your heart, or if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, yes, that Christ is going to die and rose from the dead, mm-hmm. that you will be saved. You shall be saved. Yep, it's a guarantee from God. That's what all those promises, you know, are. are can't keep the law. They cannot. And yet, as a Christian, we will make the beginnings of new obedience, but we'll never keep it to the satisfaction of divine justice. That's the thing to always bear that in mind. Whatever steps of obedience, all of us have been sanctified to some degree. And I'm very thankful for the, the work that God has done in my own life and the commandments of God that I have began, begun to obey. But I know that my obedience is always flawed and that I could never obey any of his commandments, even for an hour, to the satisfaction of God's holiness. Okay, to do that, I'd have to start out sinless, which I don't, I, none of us did. That, that's why Carl Bogue made that comment. He, he really hammered that home. He said, guys, congregation, when Adam sinned, we constructed this, the, the stain of original sin. As soon as we're conceived, we're in sin. So justification, getting into heaven to any degree by our obedience, it's off the table now. God's got to do it all for us. And all we can do is receive it, the beggar's empty hand of faith. Okay? All right. Any other thoughts or, or comments? Chris, you look like you're looking something up there. Okay, all right. Okay, well, let's, let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for um, giving us your word. It's such an encouraging thing to, just to read it together and to rejoice in what it says together, and we're so thankful. If righteousness, if justification could be achieved through the law, Christ died for nothing. And we're so thankful that you've revealed these things simply, clearly to us so that we can know we have eternal life, so we can know our sins really are forgiven, that the righteous requirement of the law really has been met by our Lord. And we pray you would give us a greater zeal and a greater passion to know him and to make him known to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.